Hello, Dr. Dang Ware here today from Authentic Biochemistry. Today is the 11th of August and the year is 2021. Now, I'm going to make a diversion from what we've been doing, talking about nitrogen-containing compounds uh, over the last four episodes. And I'm going to do this diversion because I want to bring in discussion of polypeptides in more um, floor detail because when we think about nitrogen-containing compounds, obviously proteins, which is uh, which are polymers of amino acids, uh, become prominent. And certainly in discussion of intermediary metabolism, we're usually talking about enzymes. Now today, I want to explain how intermediary metabolism, particularly bioenergetics associated with glycolysis, is actually linked to a particular transport protein and storage protein one, the transport protein is called hemoglobin. It transports molecular oxygen in the blood. And the other is myoglobin, which um, in a way um, transiently stores molecular oxygen in the skeletal muscle. I'm going to explain to you something about the biochemistry and biophysics of those two interactions and how when oxyhemoglobin tensions can be decreased, uh, especially if they decrease artificially, it can have a tremendous deleterious effect on overall homeostasis, bioenergetics, and indeed central nervous system um, health. So let's get started with this because I want this came up on another topic, and so I'm going to go ahead and do it because it's after all, it's my podcast. All right. Now, I remind you that there's a process called glycolysis, which happens in all cells, which will take glucose and convert it to pyruvate. Remember that the pyruvate can also be converted to lactate at the end, uh, or it can be converted to oxaloacetic acid or to acetyl-CoA. Those are at least three derivatives for pyruvate. There are more. For example, pyruvate can also be converted via transamination going right back into amino acid metabolism that you know, to alanine. But today I just want to talk about glycolysis and do it rather quickly because this is not a carbohydrate lecture. So glucose, when it's in the cell, will be converted by hexokinase to glucose 6-phosphate, then through an enzyme called phosphoglucose isomerase to fructose 6-phosphate, and then a very important reaction called phosphofructokinase 1 will con convert fructose 6-phosphate to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. It's important because it's an allosterically regulated enzyme. No, I'm not going to take the uh, uh, suggestion in my mind and go and talk about the regulation of that because that's not why we're in glycolysis this afternoon. So continuing on in glycolysis, fructose 1,6-bisphosphate will then um, generate two sugars, glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate, and dihydroxyacetone phosphate. And that enzyme is called aldolase. After that, the GAP can be converted to DAP. GAP is glyceraldehyde and DAP is dihydroxyphosphate. Um, um, and so that interaction is carried out by an isomerase called triosphosphate isomerase. The glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate is actually the one that continues down the glycolytic pathway through an enzyme called glyceraldehyde phosphate dehydrogenase, 
which will then conveniently make NADH and 1,3-bisphosphoglyceric acid. After that, 1,3-bisphosphoglyceric acid will do a substrate-level phosphorylation of ADP and synthesize ATP via the reaction known as phosphoglycerate kinase, which is, of course, magnesium-requiring. What the resultant product of that will be will be 3-phosphoglycerate. That will be mutated to 2-phosphoglycerate, and then the reaction enolase will remove water, and you'll make phosphoenolpyruvate, and then ultimately that high-energy intermediate phosphate on phosphoenolpyruvate, because of that double bond, will then generate another substrate-level uh, ATP synthesis. And that last enzyme is pyruvate kinase. You end up with pyruvate. So we went through one of those reactions that we're going to slow down at, and that is the triosphosphate pathway, okay, leading from the glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate to the 1,3-bis-PGA to the 3-PGA, okay? So that's the really critical enzyme I want to talk about right here. So let's see. How do I want to attack this? Because I'm not showing you this on the slides. Well, take it, to, take it from me that glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate will react with NAD and inorganic phosphate in that all-important gap dehydrogenase reaction. And the 1,3-bis phosphoglyceric acid will be formed along with NADH, which can ultimately be used in the electron transport chain in oxidative phosphorylation. Now, the 1,3-bis PGA then will react with an enzyme called phosphoglycerate kinase, which I told you is magnesium requiring. And that's going to be at substrate level ATP synthesis. You're going to end up with three phosphoglyceric acid. Okay. So remember, remember that from glycolysis. All right. So normally then the next reaction is 3-PGA, go through phosphoglycerate mutase, just moving that phosphate around from the 3 position to the 2 position. Remember that the glycerol backbone is a 3-carbon uh, compound. And so you're going to move from 3 position to 2 position, making 2-PGA, right? Now, there is an unusual intermediate that can be formed that's known as not 1,3-bis-phosphoglyceric acid, but actually 2,3-bis-phosphoglyceric acid. That's when you have phosphate on the carbon-2 and in the carbon-3. So you can see that's different from the glycolytic intermediate, right? And basically what happens here is that um, well, I think the easiest way to look at it is you have a phosphorylated enzyme, okay? And it's pho the phosphate group is on the histidine. When 3-phosphoglyceric acid reacts with that enzyme, you make a 3-phosphoglycerate-phosphoenzyme complex, Okay. And what that does, obviously, because you've now got that phosphate that's on the histidine, it binds to the glycerol backbone that's released. So histidine now lost that phosphate, and you've generated 2-phosphoglyceric acid. So that 2-phosphoglyceric acid can then immediately um, hydrolyze that phosphate ester and then add back that phosphate to the histidine, making two phosphoglyceric acid phosphoenzyme complex 
and of course, the phosphohistidine intermediate. The other possibility though, is that the three bis, two, three bis phosphoglyceric acid enzyme complex can dissociate the two, three bis phosphoglycerate, leaving a dephosphoenzyme, which is essentially inactive. Now note, we made the two, three bis off that entire series of reactions around that mutase. Okay, that's really important to understand. So once again, glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate with the gap dehydrogenase reaction will make 1,3-bis-PGA. And if 1,3-bis-PGA reacts with the bis-phosphoglycerate mutase, it, because of that phosphate on the histidine residue of that enzyme, you can make this unusual non-glycolytic intermediate 2,3-bis-phosphoglycerate, 2,3-BPG. And as I just said, you can spontaneously lose that phosphate and then make basically two, three, uh, excuse me, three PGA, which is the glycolytic intermediate. Then from there, the mutase finishes this off, the normal glycolytic mutase finishes off, that's phosphoglycerate mutase, making two PGA, and then you're on your way to finish the glycolytic cycle. But you see, in that intermediate pathway, that bisphosphoglycerate mutase, you made two, three bis PGA. And that's the important thing to mention here. Why? Because 2,3-bis-PGA will bind to deoxyhemoglobin, and that will cause a decrease in the oxygen, that's O2 affinity. So a mutation or dysregulation of glycolysis or any other alteration in the rate of glycolysis that would decrease flux through the pathway will increase hemoglobin affinity for molecular oxygen and therefore starve the periphery. Now, one way this occurs is when you have hexokinase uh, deficiency. It's one way you see this. Likewise, pyruvate kinase deficiency will cause a buildup of 2,3-bis-PGA, which will then further decrease hemoglobin affinity for molecular oxygen. So those two are actually inborn errors of metabolism, an HK deficiency and a PK deficiency, respectively. Okay, So if you look at a graph and on the y-axis, you're looking at saturation of hemoglobin with molecular oxygen on the y-axis from zero to 100%. And on the x-axis, you're looking at the partial pressure of molecular oxygen and uh, um, mm of hemoglobin, okay? You're gonna get the following. 2,3-bis-PGA at a concentration of zero, the hemoglobin essentially being stripped of 2,3-bis-PGA, such as a hexokinase mutation, will saturate the hemoglobin almost immediately as you increase the partial pressure of molecular oxygen. So you get a hyperbolic kinetic. It's a small increase in the partial pressure, that's called the PO2 of molecular oxygen, uh, essentially will then give you a hyperbolic curve, a tight binding of the oxygen at very low concentrations. Now imagine that curve. Now imagine if you add five millimole per liter of 2,3-bis-PGA, which is actually the normal concentration in the blood, five millimolar, of that unusual non-glycolytic intermediate, 2,3-bis-PGA. 
you're turning the hyperbolic profile into more of a curvilinear um, interaction where you're getting less oxygen binding even as you increase the partial pressure of molecular oxygen. Therefore, the saturation with molecular oxygen gets greatly or at least gets reduced at some level, okay? Now, if you increase to 2,3 bis PGA to 8 millimole per liter, which is what can be reached in blood from individuals adapted to high altitudes, such as living above 7,500 feet, um, and now it doesn't take very long for you to adapt to that, what happens is that you turn that curve into a sigmoidal curve, which means that it takes much more molecular oxygen to saturate the hemoglobin. So you're, you have much higher concentrations of molecular oxygen to saturate the hemoglobin that you would have had with no 2,3-bis-PGA. So that means that in people who are acclimated to high altitude, they're going to be able to give up their molecular oxygen more freely to the periphery because they're going to bind molecular oxygen with less avidity, okay, with less strength. And because of that, that oxygen will be made more available to the muscle tissue, which of course is another protein called myoglobin, which will then bind the oxygen away from the hemoglobin, okay? So you get less binding when you add more 2,3-bis-PGA, and that's what happens when you adapt to high altitude. And that's very similar if you look at hexokinase deficient versus normal erythrocytes. Uh, the hexokinase deficient, of course, are going to give you much less 2,3-bis-PGA uh, because you have a, a decreasing glycolytic pathway. So this is the way, and if you have more uh, 2,3-bis-PGA, which can be the result of a pyruvate kinase deficiency, inborn error of metabolism, you're going to be way out and having much higher concentrations of molecular oxygen necessary for oxygen uh, saturation of the circulating hemoglobin in the erythrocyte. See how that mimics it. So 100 tor, which is arterial blood, uh, hemoglobin is about 95% saturated. At 30 tor, which is venous blood, hemoglobin is only 55% saturated. So you see, this is the normal interaction of molecular oxygen with protein. And hemoglobin releases about 40% of its oxygen. So in the absence of bisphosphoglyceric acid, little oxygen is released between BPG, CO2, hydrogen and chloride ions, all oxygen binding then can be accounted for, okay? So remember, this is 2,3-bis-PGA we're talking about. So 2,3-bis-PGA uh, levels are partially responsible then for the high altitude adaptation that occurs because oxygen tensions are, are lowered, of course, as you go up in altitude. So that means you'll have less binding of what oxygen is picked up from the hemoglobin during the cycle in the lungs when the blood becomes oxygen saturated. And that means though that also the oxygen will be released more 
readily when it enters, when it leaves the lung and goes to the periphery so that that oxygen is made more available to muscle tissue. So once again, higher levels of 2,3-BIS-PGA, more oxygen available to the periphery. So those people that have been acclimated to high altitude will be able to have more molecular oxygen in the muscle, and therefore the muscle can carry out more contractions, relaxations, and be more functional for a longer period of time and not just become uh, lactic acidotic. Okay. That's the way, that's basically what 2,3-PGA is doing. So, and that at that same association you understand then is the difference between venous partial pressures of oxygen and arterial partial pressures of oxygen related to, again, the same altitude association I just described to you. <clears throat> now, that allows me to talk something about protein function. What do proteins do in the cell? Well, they transport, and that's what we're talking about here, Hemoglobin transports oxygen, for example, in the blood. It also transports carbon dioxide, which it releases ultimately in the lung, and that's the second half of the respiratory uh, exchange that occurs in the pulmonary system. So <clears throat> you have within the muscle itself an organized movement of actin and myosin, also with tropomyosin and troponin which controls that contraction, relaxation, movement cycle. Uh, and so ultimately you have a complete organized associated utilization of molecular oxygen during that contraction cycle. And of course, the oxygen is going to be ultimately reduced to water. And in so doing, you're gonna make ATP. In fact, even immune responses, uh, antibodies produced, for example, by plasma cells, which come from B cell lymphocytes, will recognize macromolecules, uh, for example, any antigens. And so that same process of binding, okay, that we saw in just binding molecular oxygen or indeed carbon dioxide by hemoglobin or myoglobin, that binding is similar to what happens in the immune response when an antibody will bind antigen. So it's all part of that binding mechanism, okay? So proteins, many proteins carry out similar functions, but with different ligands. What else proteins will do, of course, is they'll carry out catalytic events, and so we'll call those enzymes. And the third major feature for proteins in the cell is signaling, right? So those are three major functions. Now, a few concepts in protein function. You can think about a reversible binding to a molecule, and that molecule will start to call a ligand. So a ligand binds to the binding site of the protein, which is going to be structurally complementary to the ligand. So we'll say that that is a specific binding affinity. But remember that proteins are flexible and they can undergo what we call conformational configurational change. And indeed, ligands can induce this conformational change. And in that instance, we call that an induced fit. And we talk about this a lot in enzyme um, kinetics. The induced fit model of enzyme kinetics basically is that you have substrates, they bind to the enzyme in specific regions called the active site, 
when they bind the enzyme substrate complex changes its conformation. And when it does so, it'll allow for the catalytic event to occur. Uh, and that's basically lowering the activation energy necessary for the substrates to react. And in so doing, then product can be generated and even released. So that's how induced fit can be understood as a catalytic process. So what a conformational change can do also is it can propagate this conformational reordering. So the conformational change of a protein, if it's a subunit, if you have multiple subunits of polypeptides, that conformational change of one subunit will often affect the conformational change of the other interacting subunits, which are again going to be polypeptides. But if you have say a tetramer of the same monomeric units, you might have four proteins that are of the same amino acid sequence. But when they come together, each one of those will interact one another and they'll conformationally alter based on ligand binding. And so we call that a protein ligand interaction. And obviously it's going to be regulated. So we can talk about reversible binding of a protein to a ligand. And the, the best example of that is oxygen binding proteins. So you know that we need, the body needs a transporter for molecular oxygen. The reason that is, is because of the very low water solubility of oxygen, which is at about 0.035 gram per liter, even at 50 degrees. Whereas CO2 is 30, fold lower. So here you're going to have about one gram per liter solubility at that temperature. So much higher solubility of carbon dioxide, yet you want to release carbon dioxide as you breathe out and you want to take in molecular oxygen. So obviously the low solubility of oxygen in aqueous is a problem. So when you think about what kind of proteins are going to be necessary for that, Myoglobin is a protein of 153 amino acids, and it's about 17 kilodaltons in molecular mass. So it's not a particularly small protein, but it's not a large one either as enzymes go. Myoglobin isn't an enzyme. Hemoglobin is not a monomer like myoglobin. It's a tetramer. So it utilizes four subunits. Now, one of the functions that is inherited from that tetrameric structure in hemoglobin is that induced fit conformational change. So each time one molecule of molecular oxygen binds to a monomeric subunit of hemoglobin, the next subunits move towards their conformational induced fit more readily, thus binding more and more oxygen at a higher rate each time in generating this chain reaction of induced fit conformational changes. So obviously you need an oxygen carrier for both storage and transportation. Again, remember the poor solubility of molecular oxygen. So you have to have reversible binding, which means the O2 itself can't react with hemoglobin or myoglobin. Now, you know that there are many reactions, we've talked about them, that do react directly with 
molecular oxygen. These are oxygenases and even oxidases, right? Talked a lot about those in intermediary metabolism just recently, actually. So understand that myoglobin, hemoglobin actually don't carry out catalytic events with the oxygen they bind. That's a very important feature, okay? So you need oxygen to be able to, to facilitate carrying as in the blood and then storing as in the muscle tissue for ultimate utilization in the contraction cycle, contraction relaxation cycle, you see? So no real reaction with oxygen. Now, so you have to have something that has an adequate affinity to molecular oxygen. Bi biomolecules, including amino acids or sugars, don't actually bind oxygen very well because of their chemical structure. Um, uh, metal ions like iron and copper do bind oxygen quite readily. And so that's because oxygen is a very unusual, a molecular oxygen, a very unusual uh, molecule. It is a di-radical. So O16, in terms of the, the electron spin orbital arrangement is a 1s2, 2s2, 2p4 uh, molecular structure, just now counting up all the electrons, right? So that means that molecular oxygen is very eager to accept electrons. How many? Up to two electrons. So that means it's easily reduced. Molecular oxygen is easily reduced. Or another way of putting it, oxygen is a good oxidant, right? So one reaction I can tell you is one half O2, I'm, I'm balancing an equation for you, one half O2 plus two electrons plus two protons is going to give you water. That is the whole aspect of aerobic respiration, right? Now I'll remind you, although I know you people in authentic biochemistry don't need this, but for those of you that just came on today, an oxidation is a process whereby a molecular species loses an electron, and a reduction is a process whereby the electron will be gained, right? So again, very high reactivity of molecular oxygen because it's this di-radical. It has two, two unpaired electrons because of its orbital structure that I just described to you. So you have a very reactive molecular oxygen. And what do you think it will generate? It will generate a lot of reactive oxygen, partially reduced species. These are known as ROS or reactive oxygen species that we talked a great deal about. So due to its high reactivity, that is of O2, there's a number of highly reactive free radicals that are going to be generated from molecular oxygen in living systems because it's, it's basically an unavoidable consequence of aerobic respiration. So what kinds of ROS reactive oxygen are we talking about? Well, we've mentioned them many times, but superoxide anion, that's O2 minus, hydroxyl radical, that's HO dot in chemistry, and then of course hydrogen peroxide, which everybody knows because you have a bottle of it for as an antiseptic, that's H2O2. So all of those basically are partially reduced species of molecular oxygen. And because they're partially reduced, they're looking for another electron. And that means they're highly reactive. Because they're highly reactive, they can be toxic to cells. Okay? They can disrupt DNA, RNA, protein, and lipid. 
And because of that, they can destroy the normal intracellular activities that are occurring in any cell or tissue bed. And then if there's a high enough concentration of partially reduced reactive oxygen species, they will cause that cell to completely be degraded via either necrosis or, or some form of apoptosis. So that's obviously not a good thing if you're trying to maintain cell viability, right? So I think I'm going to stop there because in the next lecture, which I'm going to back up real soon here, is I'm going to go further into this whole discussion of hemoglobin, how hemoglobin works to bind molecular oxygen, and how it can pass on that O2 to myoglobin and muscle tissue, and how any process that decreases the amount of molecular oxygen that binds the hemoglobin as it's transported through the pulmonary system, through the lungs, is going to corrupt the entire process to the body because what that will do is reduce the amount of molecular oxygen available to the periphery. This can cause problems in the central nervous system and, of course, also in muscle contraction. So with that, I'm going to leave you, and I will come back, and we'll get right back into oxyhemoglobin. I promise. So why am I doing authentic biochemistry? Because I have nothing better to do, which means it's a great thing to do. And here I am signing off on the 11th day of August 2021, saying bye for now.